0: One of the first experiences I had with the Collegiate was when I walked into Wesley Hall and it smelled old and it has this like old library kind of scent to it. Welcome to Hallowed Halls, a podcast about the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. Episode four, The Best Kept Secret.
1: Walking in to Wesley Hall,
2: I felt like I was in a castle, literally. I would never have been where I am today if it, it were not for the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. Never.
0: It changed my life completely. I, I was so grateful and remain so grateful that it gave me that grounding and that start. And I've
3: certainly left part of my heart at, at, in Wesley Hall.
0: The Collegiate needs to be what the world is, but just within the walls of Wesley Hall. That's what the Collegiate needs to be. The Collegiate does reflect the city and the society that it's in. And I'm sure that's always been the case.
1: And I'll never forget this my entire life. Um, Walked into Wesley Hall and there were more people standing in just that main area than I had ever seen in my entire life in one spot. (laughs) So it was like that Sesame Street song, you know, one of these things does not belong here. I felt a little bit like that.
0: This is Derry Latimer. She and her brother Devin, attended the collegiate in the late 70s and early 80s. We come from Lynn Lake, northern Manitoba, and um, when our dad was
4: young up in Lynn Lake, they didn't have a full, they didn't have high school or grade 12 up there, so they sent the kids down south. So he he came to Wesley College in around 1950, I guess it would have been. And graduated from Wesley College, so that's kind of where our story starts with uh, the collegiate, which you know, eventually became the University of Winnipeg Collegiate.
1: It was 1977. I was 16 and uh, entering grade 12, and my father drove me down and booked me into Sparling Hall in the <laughs> residence. And I remember, you know, we uh, met with Dean Vanderstol, my dad and I, and uh, I was completely overwhelmed, of course, and. And I still remember, you know, when I shut the door in my room in residence at Sparling Hall, it was like, uh, you know, what is going on? I was just overwhelmed with the whole experience. We did IQ tests on the very first day, and I did so badly that Dean Vanderstolt called me to his office because I think he just wanted to go like you know are you, okay? are, you are you gonna make it here girl and uh, he was so kind and uh, and I told I just told him I said straight up I was overwhelmed I had I'd never done one. I had no idea what it was I didn't know what to do and and he was just so encouraging and that was just repeated through my time here you know a uh, moment like that because I could have bolted real fast back up north where it was safe you know but uh, Like I really believe that changed the course of my life. That one little moment with him, where he just believed in me, even though the results weren't looking so good at the beginning. But I did graduate, uh, student of distinction. There you go. Right?
3: Eight Mm -hmm. months later. Yeah.
0: Little bit of studying involved.
1: uh, just a smidge. (laughs) Like I never left my room.
0: (laughs) After arriving at the collegiate and being surrounded by more people than she had ever seen in one place in her entire life. There were some other things after her arrival in Winnipeg that sometimes made her feel like a bit of an outsider.
1: Before classes started, I got a note under my door saying, hey, it's, we saw in your application that you played volleyball in Leaf Rapids. Uh, come on down, we're having a practice. So I showed up and I still remember that when I walked in, there people were, you know, balls were bouncing and all of a sudden there was just silence and they were all looking at me because I wore what I wore in northern Manitoba which was cut off blue jean shorts and bare feet. <laughs> and that's literally how we played yeah. volleyball. So the, that volleyball the outfit. coach was like, um, okay, <laughs> runners. yeah,
2: yeah. What? So, what? Yeah.
0: As Derry mentioned, she lived in residence during her first year at the collegiate. Although now its rooms are used for classes and meetings, Sparling Hall, tucked behind Wesley Hall, was used as a women's residence in those days.
1: I had a roommate and so that was my first time again meeting a stranger and you know, and then living and very confined, those <laughs> rooms you'd get out of bed and you'd meet. Um, so I remember that, I remember I had to shop for food every day because it would be stolen out of the fridge because it was one <laughs> fridge for the whole of Sparling whole Hall floor. so I'd go shop, cook my food. Eat it, you know. The next day, go shop uh, because you really couldn't store. So those are some of the you know big memories. Um, it was interesting again at that age because my uh, roommate and I were very different. We got along actually for the most part, but we were so different. So she had a boyfriend and. Sometimes I would be out just a little bit and then I'd come back and the doors do not disturb (laughs) and I would sleep in the hallway literally because there's no cell phones in those days, right? So I'd literally sleep until, you know, 3 a.m. when he left and I was an early morning studier. So I, you know, my alarm went off at uh, 5 a.m. So there were some tensions as you can imagine over the year but it was a Boy, you grow up really fast with she that. She didn't kind want to get experience. up at 5 a.m. She like didn't you. want to get no. up at 5 a.m. No. <laughs> I do remember once studying in the. We had a very small closet. I went in there with a little, a little light <laughs> little, and went in there to study. And, yeah.
0: A few years after Derry graduated from the collegiate, Devin also made the move down south to Winnipeg to finish high school.
4: Same thing. It was you know quite a shocking change from going to school up north, just where you know everybody. Everybody knows you as well, and so you don't—you've never really felt like a stranger your whole life, you know. In a, when you grow up in a small town like that, so when you come to a big place like this where you don't know anybody, mm-hmm. it is quite a big shocking change. Once you settle into the place, you realize the collegiate is actually kind of like a small town in itself. You know, there's one little Tony's canteen that everybody hangs out in, so you do start to see the same people all the time. And, even though it's attached to the university, a pretty big place, the collegiate is pretty small, and you'll be in the same classes as everybody else. And yeah. again, we came from even smaller schools, mm-hmm. of course, up north. But
1: uh, well, and, and our small. school was in the town center, which is where the you know curling rink and the healthcare center and the grocery right. store were. Uh, everything. And then walking in to Wesley <clears throat> Hall and just being in a classroom there, mm-hmm. I felt like I was in a castle. Literally, you know, that's what people. It was just, so everything about it, I remember just touching the wood when I was walking up the stairs. And that was also magical yeah, about sure. it and yeah. made it and different, it I think, than any other high school.
0: Devin and Derry both talk about a place that has come up already on this podcast. And that will come up again and again. Tony's, the legendary and beloved canteen of Wesley Hall.
4: I guess it was the downtown of the Cleveland, like it was the only cafe you went to. I mean, the Buffeteria and all that existed. We, you know, you could get go to those ones too, but they were in the university, so you didn't really go there that often. So it was just the place you naturally went to for lunch, or really almost between every class, every time you had any sort of time. Besides hanging out in the locker room, you would go hang out in Tony's. It was where you just Congregated and that's where all the socializing happened, I think, on a daily basis. Yeah. And I guess it was in the days where you didn't have to go outside to smoke either. I seem to remember smoking in the in the locker room Mm -hmm. and probably in Tony's Mm -hmm. back then. Probably. My first physics professor here at the university smoked while he lectured. So (laughs) imagine that.
0: (laughs) Like that. Puffing on a a butt. Uh. Nearly forty years later, Devin still spends his days on the U of W campus. He's a chemistry professor at the university. And he credits his time at the collegiate for inspiring his love of science. I
4: think I had an interest in science before that, but that's really where that was
0: fostered. JJ Silver,
4: my chemistry teacher, and Rock and Ron Rudell, <laughs> physics teacher back then. He was a very famous instructor there. Um, that's really where it all everything made made sense. Everything about chemistry and physics started to make sense to me. It was from those two. Hmm guys so that it just suddenly it wasn't a struggle anymore and i'm sure i struggled at that time but like i said there was this extra time they just they were always there for you and these people that they cared and
1: yeah and uh so i definitely see i had shared a bit earlier that i came in i certainly was not academic previously or academically focused previously school i just did you know because i had to sort of thing and uh and it was really right away when I saw that somebody believed in that I could do this, it was like a switch went and I said to myself, I am going to do this and I'm, I'm going to sort of show uh, myself but also other people that I can accomplish this. So I, I, my love of learning and my hard work uh, ethic, some of which maybe I had, but it was just propelled, I believe and seeing teachers who loved what they do uh, and I don't know if that's like Mr. Mm-hmm. Silver, but uh, so. that that changes kids, yeah. you know, it really does. And many traits that I, I think are, that I value in myself now. Mr. Ting? Yeah. Mr. Ting, like we were saying, his enthusiasm for biology, it was just, again, I was just going, I want to be that enthusiastic about mm-hmm. what I do. <laughs> you know, it was a joy to watch him. Mm-hmm. Mr. Joy, he almost danced when he taught. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. Yeah.
5: yeah. I can't help but, you know, just remember um, Mr. O. Kowalczyk, Mr. Kowalczyk, Mr. Uh, Kowalchik just getting so into Death of a Salesman and like becoming Willie Loman and, and really living it as he was uh, describing it.
0: This is Leonard Asper. He chose to finish his high school studies at the collegiate and graduated in 1982.
5: First and foremost, it was intimate. I have to work the, the rock band Rush into this because I'm such a huge fan. But, you know, that song, Subdivisions. Uh, that they have where you know there's there's a lot of stuff um, you, know, you know you kind of get pigeonholed in high in bigger high schools. You are you in the preppy crowd, are you the athlete crowd? Are you the are you you know the nerds or the cool people or whatever. So U of didn't collegiate didn't have that. You know, people really accepted you for who you were and actually celebrated difference. And and it was also, you know, people from all over the city. So you got to know, you know, different people and not all say just the same people from your neighborhood. The other part of it was you know the teachers were much, you know, um, closer or much, much more involved with the students. They really didn't. There wasn't a sort of command or sort of a hierarchy, really. This, the, this, this, the teachers were, were sort of part of the student crowd, and they, they, you know, you got to know them better. They hung out in, in the, in the, uh, in the canteen.
0: One of the extracurriculars that Leonard was involved in was the coffee house, where musically inclined students could show off some of their talents. For Leonard, his hidden talent was the piano.
5: The coffee house we had was, you know, fantastic. I mean, the, uh, you know, where we got to play and, you know, again, in a very intimate setting and, and uh, you know, with teachers and students mingling. I believe it was Jennifer Anderson, who was, uh, you know, a you know, fantastic, you know, world-class singer. I think she used to sing the national anthem of the, uh, the Jets games. Uh, we, we did, we did the, we played some songs. I'm trying to remember what we played, but I, I can't remember the song now. We, we always played, we played, the, I think there were two caviazos, so that was, that was, I did. And I probably had a couple of impromptu uh, piano sessions, I recall, were, I think there was a piano on the third floor. So I'd just sneak in there and, and play it by myself when I could. Uh, I'd never been so nervous in my life, but you know, playing for a world-class singer, but, um, but there you go. So that was, uh, that
0: was fun. Years later, Leonard would return to the collegiate to play the piano. He was invited by none other than Susan Thompson, who you he heard from on the last episode of the podcast, to perform at the unveiling of the newly restored Convocation Hall in 2007.
5: Yeah, I think it was the same piano, you know, yeah. It was, it was very badly out of tune, but, but yes, I did. I think I, I can't remember if I played the national anthem or whatever, but, but yeah. It was, um, it, again, the, the whole place made you feel free to be yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something you, know, you don't necessarily get in a high school, or a big high school.
0: After graduating from the Collegiate, Leonard went on to become a successful lawyer and business person. For 10 years, he was the president and CEO of Canwest Global Communications, which under his leadership grew to become Canada's largest media company, operating 20 television channels including the global TV network. Many of the lessons Leonard learned about leadership and responsibility can be traced back to his time at the Collegiate.
5: I guess it made me realize that everything doesn't have to be sort of the way you think it has to be again, if you think of what you think high school is um uh, you know you're getting really a glimpse of university a year before university. I don't know how much that necessarily shaped me, but it certainly made me realize that you know the four walls aren't really the four walls they're just an illusion in a way and and really um u of w was almost a school with all uh, with school with walls situation that you you had to you know you had more responsibility and and so I think that, you know, that certainly prepared me better for university. You, you know, you can't just you can't compartmentalize yourself in, you, at the collegiate because there aren't enough people to have have big groups of like-minded, you know, homogenous people. So you, you I, I think it, you know, taught me to sort of appreciate and be able to, you know, integrate with people that, you know, didn't come from the same background. And it was much more, you know, liberal and, you know, and I mean, I don't mean that politically. I mean, just, you know, people just accepting people for who they are. And I think that was, um, you know, that certainly has been the way I've conducted my life. But it was, you know, you could fall into the trap of conformity and, 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 and sort of, you know, people pushing you in one direction and, and thinking you have to be a certain way. And U of W, from the teachers to the environment, really taught you, you, you really can be what you want to be.
0: As a business leader, Leonard has always kept ties to the collegiate and supported the school, including by serving on the board of the U of W Foundation with Susan Thompson.
5: Uh, well, look. The, look, conventional high schools are just not for everybody, and uh, you know, and probably today, I obviously I'm not in a high school today, but uh, you know, I have kids that went through high schools, and and um, you know, there's still uh, I think an alternative way of uh, you know being educated and and spending your day uh, and and uh, interacting with people that is needed. I think it should be. I wish it were a lot bigger and you know even more accessible because I think there are probably a lot more. Would be a lot more demand in, in, you know for this kind of a school. I I think other schools should ideally adopt the UW approach and give people a little more freedom. You know, I, I feel I really felt UW the collegiate particularly was the, was the best kept secret, unfortunately, around.
0: If the collegiate is one of the best kept secrets around, there are many unique things about the school that often go unnoticed or unknown, unless you have experience within the walls of Wesley Hall. For example, the long-standing connection between the Collegiate and the Royal Winnipeg Ballet.
2: Well, The RWB professional division is a division of our school that actually trains dancers to become professional dancers. The dancers, most of them have moved away from home and they live in our current residence. Uh, So they dance during the day, mostly in the morning. Uh, and then they go to school in the afternoon. Uh, but right now, the U of W is, is uh collegiate is still supporting our, our program, which is wonderful.
0: This is Tara Burtwistle. She danced for the Royal Winnipeg Ballet for more than two decades, including for more than 10 years as the company's principal dancer, or prima ballerina. And she now serves as the ballet's associate artistic director. But before all that, she attended the collegiate as part of the RWB's professional division in the late 1980s. I think
2: the hardest part is being homesick as a young person. It's hard because you, you don't have your parents in during your teenage years. But then you create this community in the RWB and, and within the collegiate as well. You sort of trade off kind of the regular teenage things for training. Uh, so you weren't going to any extracurricular activities either. Uh, not only were uh, we going to the to the collegiate less than everybody else, we were also not able to participate in other things, so you kind of stuck in this, this bit of a bubble. When I went there, we were called the bunheads because you had to come straight from class and you usually had your hair in a bun uh, because you were going back to class. Because it was a very different atmosphere at UW, as opposed to a high school, it was much easier to be, quote, different. Because you're right, even in the 80s, there were people who, people who chose to go to the collegiate usually were in different circumstances, or um, had a different mindset, uh, being independent, going about their academics a little bit differently, because everyone was there by choice. It gave a different, um, just a a different atmosphere than a regular high school. Although, I mean, I guess I don't have that much to compare it to. I didn't go to high school, um, but I did feel very support, supported.
0: Although most of her time was spent training and thinking about her future with the ballet, Tara did have some memorable encounters with her instructors at the collegiate.
2: I had an English teacher that stood out and it's been so long. And I can't remember, I think her name was Mrs. Webster. She was so incredibly supportive, like I can picture her. She was so incredibly supportive in that I felt like I could talk to her. I didn't have like personal, big personal conversations with her, but talking about the difficulty of balancing the training and school, she inspired me to uh, take on these challenges uh, so, that that's a teacher that really has it stuck with me, although I thought that I didn't remember her name, but I did. <laughs> yeah, I haven't thought about her in a while, but yes, she, she stuck with me, uh, especially in my early years of being a professional.
3: The classes were set up to help students who were swimming for three hours in the morning, the ballet students. You know, the program was designed to make sure that they had success.
0: This is Phyllis Webster, the Mrs. Webster that Tara Birtwistle remembers from her English classes all those years ago. And part of making sure students were successful was approaching teaching a little bit differently. Phyllis has plenty of stories about her creative classroom antics, from forming a mock totalitarian state to teach The Handmaid's Tale, to having students read aloud while going up and down the escalators in Centennial Hall.
3: I used to start waiting for Godot by taking them to an elevator, and we just went up and down and up and down and up and down the elevator until somebody broke loose. Somebody would finally just say, I can't stand this any longer and leave because I wouldn't talk to them and I wouldn't tell them anything. And I wouldn't even be talked to anybody who got into the elevator with us. And of course it was an introduction to the theme of the book, which is waiting. So then we would generate a very long list of all the expressions we have in English around waiting. And of course, what I was driving them towards is that all of us on this earth, one of the big waits is the moment of death. And the book deals very much with that, except that it's very hopeful that as long as we stay together, as long as the two clowns stay together and continue to play their games and continue to watch the cycle of nature, etc., that this is how we're all going to, to survive, even though we know from the moment that we're born that we are going to die. Anyway, it was that kind of thing that you could do at the collegiate that I'm not sure you could always do at other schools. I have to say that the collegiate teachers are almost all slightly alternative thinkers who were encouraged to uh, to follow their own pedagogical initiatives, etc., which is why, you know, I think it was such a creative place for students to be. And many students who were reluctant scholars, especially those who'd come from other schools where they had been vilified for, for something or another, I said they were students off the rails. But they would they would hop back on the rails because of that.
0: One of the classes that Phyllis is most proud of is her journalism course, which she created and pioneered shortly after arriving at the school.
3: I started it, I think, in 89. I I started them off as cub reporters and then they went to be senior reporters. My name was Editor Webster and I was rather crusty and, you know, didn't smoke cigars or drink, but, you know, I was I wasn't the sweet, gentle person that I generally am. And uh, (laughs) in literature classes, for instance, but one of my favorite things was that I would introduce them to a tape recorder and I had many tape recorders. I would have somebody come in from the hallway. Sometimes it was a caretaker come in and whisper in my ear something and then look significantly at the class and then walk out. And of course the test was to see if they noticed that the person had come in, and then they had to write down exactly what they'd seen, how the person was dressed, and most of them didn't do that. Then I would have somebody come in and do something really unusual. I persuaded Mr. Hector, a former student, to come in and have a huge argument with me, calling me Phyllis, and it was pretty serious. And I, of course, got angrier and angrier and he left and then I walk around and bang down a piece of paper on everybody's desk and, and say, I'm going to Tony's and, uh, to have a cup of coffee and to calm down. And then it would say, this was a happening and you're to write a story about it by, you know, such and such a time. You'll find Mr. Hector standing on the front steps of Wesley Hall and Mrs. Webster will be in, in Tony's. I was teaching them to scrum, you see. So they'd go scrum, and then they'd have to find the focus of the story. So anytime anybody came into the classroom, there would be a scurry to get all the tape recorders. And the good ones had the tape recorder right there beside them all the time.
0: Although it's been a decade now since she left the collegiate, and she now lives on the West Coast, the collegiate remains near and dear to Phyllis. She usually visits Winnipeg once a year, and each time she makes a point of visiting the castle on Portage Avenue.
3: I've certainly left part of my heart at, in Wesley Hall. I d- used to say the day that I walked from the car park across and to Wesley Hall and didn't look up to admire the whole building was the day I knew I was tired of teaching and I would resign. I never reached that stage.
2: It's funny because when people ask me about my dance career and it seems like a whole nother lifetime ago. I have small children. Their utmost embarrassing moments is when people recognize me on the street. Uh, and I will say, I mean I'm touched that I um, was able to bring joy to the audience. Uh, some of my highlights, I was nominated for a Gemini for my role in Guy Mann's Dracula. I have uh, danced for the Queen, I ate dinner with the Queen, pretty much right next to her at her table. Uh, I toured with Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer. It was called The Royal Christmas, so it was a big Christmas show that we did in arenas, which is crazy. And so I was, the dancers, obviously, um, we did a nutcracker portion. and Same with the Bocelli tour as well, it was a holiday theme. Which was hilarious because with Bocelli we were in Madison Square Garden, and I, we finished our Poda, and there was like so much applause, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" Except then Bocelli came out, and then it was like thunderous applause. So that was clearly how many people were in that that arena. They were politely clapping for us, but (laughs) it sounded good. I know, like when I think about these things in hindsight, or. I might mention them because people don't know me as a dancer. Now that I meet people in life, they know I danced. So if they see something on my wall or they or I casually say something, everyone's shocked. And then I and then I'm shocked too. I'm like, did I really live that life?
0: That was episode 4 of Hallowed Halls. On this episode, we heard from Derry Latimer, a consultant and public speaker who graduated from the Collegiate in 1978, and her brother Devin Latimer, a chemistry professor at the University of Winnipeg, who graduated from the Collegiate in 1982. We also heard from lawyer and businessperson Leonard Asper, who also graduated in 1982. Tara Burtwhistle, former principal dancer and current associate artistic director at the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, who graduated from the Collegiate in 1988, and Phyllis Webster, who taught English at the Collegiate for more than 20 years, from the late 80s until 2010. The music you heard on this episode is by Lee Rosevere, and Tchaikovsky's Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies, recorded by Kevin MacLeod. For links to all the songs featured on this episode, and to hear more from Lee Rosevere, check out the show notes. This podcast is produced by me, Isaac Werman, with support from Dean Kevin Clace and Associate Dean Bonnie Talbot of the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. We acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 1 territory, ancestral lands of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji-Cree, Dakota, and Denny peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We also acknowledge that our water is sourced from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation. Tune into the next episode of the podcast where we'll be moving into the 21st century and we'll hear some more from former English teacher Phyllis Webster. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing this podcast. Talk to you next time.